They were strangers in their own land. Native American, but not Americans. It was this way all over the United States in the early 1900s. After the Indian Wars, the many Indians who weren't dead or imprisoned or forced onto reservations were left in limbo, wherever they happened to be, on land that could be seized, without citizenship, left to disappear one way or another. It was this way in White Earth in central Minnesota, where a couple of researchers from the University of Minnesota and the Smithsonian went to measure the heads and pinch the skin of the local Ojibwe to prove that they were or weren't full-blooded Indians. Most of them, by this misguided measure, were not, to the delight of lumbermen who could then seize their land. It was this way in Chippewa City in northern Minnesota, where George Morrison was born in 1919, by the shore of Lake Superior, among a dozen or so Ojibwe families crowded into shacks by the water, without plumbing or electricity, hauling water by the bucket from the lake. I want to be an artist, Morrison told anyone who asked, though he had nothing but a knife, some wood to whittle. I cannot have imagined that he would soon be in New York City, selling art to museums, telling anyone who asked that he was not an Indian artist. This is The Object, produced by the Minneapolis Institute of Art. Today, the story of an artist who refused to color between the lines he was given until he could define them for himself. It's The New Horizons of George Morrison. I'm Tim Gearing. When the frontier was settled, and the dust had settled, and the Indians were supposedly gone, city folks began to head out in cars and trains to get some fresh air and see what all the fuss was about. And they found that the Indians weren't entirely gone after all, that they were still there, in Arizona and Wyoming and Minnesota, To visit them became an exotic pastime, like visiting Guatemala or the moon. A year after George Morrison was born in 1919, a highway was rammed through town, not to get to town, but to get to the other side, to the old fort of Grand Portage a couple of miles up the shore, and to the Canadian border some 40 miles farther, as though Chippewa City were not a town at all, but a hill to be blasted through. The town was in tatters, but Morrison's family stayed. For the fishing, for the cemetery, where graves are covered with little A-frame spirit houses, and especially for the Catholic Church, built by an Ojibwe carpenter. Morrison was the third of twelve children. Most of what his family had was faith. And when the tourists came and realized the Indians were still there, they stopped and bought some of the things that George Morrison made. Miniature tomahawks and drums and bows and arrows that he sold to the tourist shops to sell to these white people. So they could prove that they'd gone to this exotic place. That they'd been to the moon. When Morrison was nine, his parents sent him and a brother to an Indian boarding school almost 200 miles away in Wisconsin, where he learned English and learned he had tuberculosis in his hip, so that he laid for eight months with casts on both legs, immobile, 
in a hospital far away in St. Paul, with almost nothing to do but read and draw, until he returned to his village a different person, with different ideas. The village was nearly abandoned by then, so eventually he went off to college, spurred by a white lady who summered by Superior, and encouraged him to leave this place and forget where he was from. Morrison became a student at the Minneapolis School of Art in 1938. The school was then part of the Minneapolis Institute of Art, and Morrison may or may not have thought about the Indian land that the museum was on, or that the man who measured the skulls of Indians up north had once been hired by the museum, along with the University of Minnesota, to dig up the graves of a long-gone people in New Mexico and bring back their skeletons and pottery. Morrison studied design and painting, and how to talk and drink at parties. Forgot all about making tomahawks and drums. Then he bought a one-way ticket to New York. He took everything he needed on the train, moved into Greenwich Village, a long way from Lake Superior, and the best place in the world then for someone in love with the latest art, the avant-garde. And there he became an artist. Not an Indian artist, as he reminded people, but an artist who happened to be Indian. There were no buffalo or teepees in his art, only color and lines, abstraction. When he returned one summer to Duluth, near his old village on the lake, he told the newspaper there that his work was moving away from the literal, the modeling, and the narrative. There may remain deeply hidden some remote suggestion of the rock whence I was hewn, he wrote. The preoccupation of the textural surface, the mystery of the structural and organic element, the enigma of the horizon, or the color of the wind. But for the most part, no, there was no Indian in his work, only the work. When he entered a show of Native American art in Oklahoma in 1946, He was rejected and was not surprised. When Morrison was making his name in New York in the 1950s, the most famous Indian in America was a white guy, Rock Hudson, who played an Indian in a blockbuster movie. The real Indians were dead, or were expected to act like it, as though their culture had stopped evolving around the turn of the century, with teepees and buffalo, Morrison wasn't pushing native imagery in his art, but critics still expected to find it. And usually they did, even when it wasn't there. The more they found it, the more he resisted, until he began to come around to it himself, in his own way. The avant-garde had not been a great fit either. A small scene of white men who lived large, who came out of World War II rejecting the world as it was, only to replicate it. The parts they wanted, anyway. The sexism, the racism, the elitism. Morrison knew these macho men. He lived with them and studied with them and showed with them. And he got plenty of shows, in museums and galleries. But he often took to the road, to Paris and to Rhode Island and to Duluth for a year and to Cape Cod on the Atlantic Ocean, 
where he began to spend his summers. which reminded him of Lake Superior, a kind of inland ocean, and of the life he'd really never left. He began making collages of driftwood gathered from Cape Cod, which reminded him of the horizon line of Lake Superior, somewhere in the middle of the sky. He made a kind of totem pole, too, tall and thin and minimal, painted red. He took an Indian name, turning the feather around. But by then, he was back in Minnesota, for good this time. He bought land near his birthplace on the lake and built a home and studio where he could see the horizon and the art scene that had largely forgotten all about him by then in 1970, soon found him again, now that he had left it behind. Morrison's mother had died the year before, in 1969, just before Christmas. Morrison buried his mother in Duluth. Then he found a job at the University of Minnesota, teaching art and Indian studies. I wanted to come back to the Indian Connection, he said, to Minnesota and my family. I felt the need to put certain Indian values in my work. Not the values of the settlers, a romance for a disappearing race, but his own values, his connection to a living people. Morrison was invited to show at the Art Institute of Chicago in 1977, an exhibition called The Native American Heritage. Evan Maurer, who would later become director of the Minneapolis Institute of Art, organized the show and talked of Morrison's work in much the same way as other critics at other times, of sacredness and ancestral heritage. But this time, Morrison agreed. He installed a tall red totem as the centerpiece of the show. He was treated like a sage, an elder, though he was only 58 as though he had lived a full life, which of course he had, a double life in two worlds. ¶¶ 